everyone, and welcome to the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. My name is Finarni Jorgensen. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. And today we have with us Laura Smith, who's lecturer in human geography at University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, and she will talk about her new book, uh, Ecological Restoration and the US Nature and Environmental Writing Tradition, A Rewilding of American Letters, uh, which came out with Palgrave Macmillan this year in 2022. So we'll just jump straight into it. The floor is yours, Laura. Thank you. Hi, everyone. And thanks, Dolly and Finana, for inviting me uh, and to everyone for joining my talk this afternoon as well. Uh, I'm thrilled to be part of the Greenhouse Book Talk series. So I'll share uh, some background about how I came to write the book uh, and the environmentalism and conservation context uh, that the book joins. And I'll briefly outline uh, the chapters to give you a sense of uh, the argument and finish by sharing something what I hope the book might contribute to uh, ecological restoration conversations as well as cultural geography uh, and environmental politics and then I'm excited for the discussion that will follow afterwards as well. So as a little bit of background it was while I was writing my master's dissertation in 2005 that I was first introduced to the works of transcendentalist uh, Henry David Thoreau and I was writing at the time a dissertation on the restoration ecologies of two UK environmental organisations, uh, the Eden Project uh, in Cornwall in southwest England, uh, an ambitious project to convert a former China clay pit into a botanic garden uh, with giant geodesic biomes, and uh, the National Forest Company in the Midlands, uh, which is uh, leading a, a decades-long reforestation and regeneration program across 200 square miles uh, in the three counties of Derbyshire, Leicestershire and Staffordshire. And it was during a conversation about coalfield regeneration in the Midlands that a friend happened to mention in passing that I should read Thoreau's uh, 1854 text Walden about the two years uh, he spent in a cabin on the shores of Walden Pond in the mid 1840s. And as I read more about Thoreau and about Walden Woods, I learned of the conservation and restoration work of the environmental nonprofit Walden Woods Project and the Thoreau Institute at Walden Woods. And Eden and the National Forest were continuing as case studies into my PhD. And I added the Walden Woods Project and its links to Thoreau as, as a third case study. Then after my PhD, I continued to look at some of the other American environmental writers whose names and texts had cropped up uh, in relation to ideas around ecological restoration and restoration ecologies during my research. And so while continuing to uh, look into the work of Thoreau and, and what he'd uh, kind of begun in Walden, I also began to study the works of Edward Abbey and particularly his writings uh, on the problem of Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell on the Colorado River on the Utah-Arizona border. And following on from there, the work of the environmental nonprofit Glen Canyon Institute. So with Thoreau and Abbey as a springboard, I've continued to look into whether environmental writers and their texts have again in various ways informed whether explicitly or implicitly the work of environmental nonprofits working on ecological restoration and what those conversations on restoration have looked like. And my book is essentially a deep dive into that inquiry. So into the entanglements between page and place in restoration programs. So my aim with the book was to write a critical history of the intersections between American environmental literature and ecological restoration policy and practice. Works of nature and environmental writing 
are celebrated for their contributions to the conservation movement and environmentalism in the US. But I found that the same genre is often overlooked or neglected in conversations on ecological restoration. And for me, I feel that ecological or environmental literature can reveal critical attention to landscape and its environmental history. And that has much to offer a restoration ecology and especially cultural landscape restoration. Environmental literature provides and becomes a site for restorationists to grapple with and work through questions of why and how nature should be restored. And so throughout the book, I argue that environmental writing can and probably should be recast and maybe politicised as a botanical and ecological inventory for restoration as a kind of almanac or field guide. So within the book, I introduce a storying, restoring, restoring framework to kind of consider how entanglements between writers and places have produced literary interventions in restoration politics. And I use this framework to argue that through various storyings of landscapes by environmental writers, whether in narrative nonfiction or works of fiction, that restorationists might find a roadmap to restoring or rewilding landscapes. And this restoring motif plays with entanglements of writing and rewriting stories about the land and how restoration programs can reconceptualize, reorganize, reinterpret and recycle these storyings of the land. So I look at the ways that literary landscapes come to be politicized by writers themselves and or by conservationists, activists, policymakers and others in an effort to speak back to an ethics of ecological care and responsibility and to respond to environmental injustices. I've structured the book around five figures of the American conservation movement, Henry David Thoreau, John Muir, Aldo Leopold, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Edward Abbey. For each of these writers, I argue in the book, is also an early articulator of ideas of ecological restoration and has inspired restoration programmes and campaigns, even if uh, the kind of field of the applied ecology uh, of, of ecological restoration came much later. So Thoreau, Muir, Leopold and Abbey have all inspired in different ways the creation of environmental nonprofits to defend the landscapes popularised in their writings. The Walden Woods Project, Restore Hedge Hetchy, the Aldo Leopold Foundation and Glen Canyon Institute. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas set up her own environmental nonprofit to do exactly the same thing, uh, Friends of the Everglades. And so ecological restoration is a central theme across all five of these organisations. And at the heart of their work is the kind of literary legacy of these writers and the ways that it comes to be politicised in contemporary conservation and restoration battles. And I'll uh, kind of come back to that in a minute. But it's also really important to note as well that few of the featured writers in the book are without flaws or, or prejudices, particularly following the death of, of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. In 2020, the Sierra Club is confronting historic racism in the early history of the organisation and in some of its founding and early members, including John Muir, who founded the Sierra Club in 1892. At the same time, Abbey was also notorious for his views on guns, immigration, women and indigenous and minority groups. So there's kind of all those uh, issues bound up in, uh, in the, the kind of telling of these stories as well. And then around these central ideas of environmental literature and ecological restoration, 
sit several more intertwining narratives. So I look at the history uh, and within that, the elitism, colonialism and racism of the American conservation movement, the evolution of uh, environmental legislation and regulation, the history, politics and ethics of the national parks and national monuments system, ideas of wilderness, the close of the frontier, reclamation of the American West, military battles and campaigns, the Underground Railroad and the abolition of slavery, dislocations and relocations of indigenous and other communities during the establishment of national parks and nonviolent direct action and environmental protest. So there's a, there's a number of other th themes woven through the book that kind of branch out from this, this focus around literature and, and restoration. But the central chapters of the book address in turn the restoration ecologies of the five featured writers. The chapters are presented uh, historically organized by date of birth of the writer and each chapter title borrows uh, a writer's description of that place. The first of these chapters uh, begins with, with Thoreau um, and his two year stay in a cabinet at Walden Pond from 1845 to 47 and unpacks and examines his writings on nature, wildness and wilderness at Walden. When Walden Woods is threatened by recreation and development pressures a little over a century later, Thoreau's environmental philosophy and writings become part of the arsenal of campaigners fighting to preserve and protect the woods. And this campaign in the 1950s heralds the first of several confrontations in Walden Woods, and I examine the different restoration reference models and strategies that have played out over the last seven decades at Walden, and in particular the work of the Walden Woods Project, the latest organisation uh, working to restore uh, Thoreau's Walden. Alongside a focus on Walden, there's a, there's a second Thoreau narrative that runs through the chapter, and it follows Thoreau's trips to Maine uh, in 1846, 1853 and 1857, and how his writings on the Maine woods are echoed in the proposal for a national park. And here I also look at the work of Restore the North Woods, uh, which is used to tell this kind of decades long campaign and the place of Thoreau's legacy again in a conservation battle uh, and pair it with uh, the story of the designation of Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument in 2016. I use Muir's California writings, especially his writings on the Sierras and Yosemite to uh, contextualize uh, the next chapter. And his writings are set against a number of events that reveal uh, the kind of history and origins of Muir's battle to save the Hetch Hetchy Valley in uh, Yosemite National Park from uh, a dam and reservoir project. And I trace this through uh, from the signing of the Yosemite Grant in 1864 uh, to Yosemite's designation as America's third national park in 1890 to Muir's founding of the Sierra Club two years later, his Yosemite camping trip with President Theodore Roosevelt in 1903, and Roosevelt's signing of the Antiquities Act in 1906, and uh, perhaps most significantly, the San Francisco earthquake the same year, um, that uh, also signaled the death knell for uh, the Hetch Hetchy Valley by need for a kind of secure water supply um, and the passage of, a, of an act allowing that a few years later. The Hetch Hetchy Valley was submerged behind a Shaughnessy Dam and the rising waters of uh, Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in the 1910s and 1920s. But Muir's philosophy uh, and writings have continued to inspire campaigns fighting to restore the Hetch Hetchy Valley. 
So I examine the ongoing call for restoration through the work of another environmental nonprofit, Restore Hetch Hetchy, over the last two decades. In particular, the organization's legal campaign against the city and county of San Francisco. In the next chapter, I begin by tracing the development of Aldo Leopold's uh, conservation philosophy, particularly through his work with the US Forest Service in the American Southwest and his work as a professor at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. And there's two experiments in ecological restoration that particularly confirm Leopold's position as an early pioneer of restoration. Uh, his work at the Curtis, Curtis Prairie at the University of Wisconsin Arboretum and at the Leopold family farm. And Leopold's conservation and stewardship legacy and his family's restoration efforts at the farm that became known as, as the shack amongst them are continued in the work of the Aldo Leopold Foundation. And I look at Leopold's wilderness uh, legacy as well and what it means for, for ecological restoration from his work with the Forest Service to establish the first uh, federally designated wilderness area in the States to his place as a co-founder of the Wilderness Society and the achievements of the 1964 Wilderness Act. In my research on uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and, and the Florida Everglades, the, the kind of narrative of this begins um, in 1947, which saw both the publication of Douglas's uh, Everglades River of Grass and the designation of Everglades National Park one month later. And it wasn't until this time that conservation and restoration conversations really began to take hold in the Everglades. Two decades later, when Douglas established Friends of the Everglades, it was as a platform for discussion, but more importantly, action on Everglades restoration. And I've been particularly interested in how uh, Douglas emerged as a leading voice campaigning for restoration in the Everglades and trace some of the legal battles uh, and the lawsuits filed by the organization. I also look at the legislation on and strategies for restoration that have played out across the Everglades, culminating uh, in the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, which was signed uh, late in 2000. The last or the final focus uh, of my book is, is Edward Abbey and it begins by thinking about some of the questions um, that came up when Glen Canyon Dam was authorised in 1956 as part of uh, the Colorado River Storage Project. And literature and the literary imaginary emerged as a powerful platform for conservationists to voice concern over the loss of this canyon, uh, but to also call for its restoration. And it was during this campaign that Muir's failed battle for Hetch Hetchy uh, was kind of reignited and retold within uh, Glen Canyon. Abbey's perhaps Glen Canyon's most uh, vocal but also controversial protagonist um, and in this uh, kind of examination I, I look at his fiction and non-fiction writings on the Glen and the, the different ways he called for the anticipated restoration uh, of the Glen through a variety of uh, non-violent and uh, quite incendiary uh, suggestions. But I also consider Abbey and his writings alongside other writers on Glen Canyon, uh, particularly Katie Lee, uh, Ellen Malloy and Terry Tempest Williams, and through the work of uh, the Glen Canyon Institute as a kind of organizational institutional response to 
uh, not only Abby's call to arms, but some of the political dialogue around uh, decommissioning. I've looked at the, uh, the near failure of Glen Canyon Dam in the 1980s and how the Bureau of Rec Reclamation, which oversees uh, operation of the dam, is responding to sustained calls for restoration and the place of Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell in wider political conversations on dam decommissioning in the US. Uh, this seems particularly uh, pertinent at the moment, given that Glen Canyon Dam is currently uh, at a lake level, or Lake Powell is currently at a level uh, it hasn't been at since the dam was filling in the 1960s. So there's, um, there's a number of uh, conversations reigniting around, you know, what happens when it reaches a certain level. Um, so alongside this focus on uh, the politics of Glen Canyon Dam in particular, and the, the literature that emerged around it, I've also um, been particularly interested in the ways that uh, that literary activism, and particularly chapbooks, so uh, short collected volumes of, of essays and letters and poems, have um, contributed to other conservation campaigns in southern Utah in particular, uh, in the designation of Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in the mid-90s, and more recently around uh, the designation of Bezier's National Monument uh, in 2016 at the close of uh, President Obama's administration. So in bringing together this history of ecological restoration and the history of uh, nature and environmental writing, I want to expand uh, the critical reading of the impact, significance and relevance of some major environmental texts and also reevaluate what's meant by ecological restoration um, and which disciplines might contribute to its articulation and, and development. The ecological restoration ethic of Thoreau, of Muir, of, of Leopold, of Douglas, of Abbey, and the responses of the environmental nonprofits that have emerged out of that uh, philosophy and writing demonstrate how environmental writing can become or has become a tool for activism and advocacy. So my hope for this book is that it might challenge the underrepresentation of nature and environmental writing in ecological restoration rhetoric and present a literary provocation or intervention in restoration politics. Thanks very much for listening uh, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much, Laura. That was absolutely, sounds like a wonderful book um, that's really doing exactly what, what you're saying here about bringing a type of work into the conversation, which obviously is there. I mean, it, it, it's, it's undergirding the, these entire movements and yet somehow unacknowledged in, in doing that. Um, so I was wondering, um, I guess, first of all, in terms of words and how we talk about restoration. Um, and you mentioned, of course, the Bureau of Reclamation, um, which is reclaiming things in a very different way uh, than, than we might, you know, say restoration now. Um, but how did your authors, you know, what kind of words do they use for this thing that we or you as an author are giving this label restoration? It's interesting, restoration crops up more times in their writing than I was expecting when I set out. Uh, certainly in uh, some of the earlier writers before uh, restoration ecology became uh, an, an established field. So it's, it's often used in the books interchangeably with ideas of um, regeneration, particularly when uh, Muir and Thoreau are writing about forests. 
uh, Leopold quite explicitly writes about restoration, and that's perhaps one of the, uh, the earliest formulations amongst the authors that I'm looking at. Um, but the thing I found particularly interesting when, in, within it um, was Thoreau's idea of uh, redeeming or uh, redemption through this kind of protection uh, and conservation approach. And still the, the intricacies and the, uh, the contradictions within that as well. So there are passages in Thoreau's writing um, where he writes that redeeming a swamp comes pretty near making the world. Um, and that that focus on, um, you know, protection of landscape and, and environment is, is core. And then in his other writings, um, out on Cape Cod, he, he talks about how uh, farmers and uh, town residents can redeem uh, forest for social use. So you get this real mix and there's the contradiction uh, within it. And there's, there's a number of terms that do overlap. And that was something that I'd looked at in my PhD as well, this, uh, this interchange that came out through uh, environmental organisations that would quite happily switch regeneration, rehabilitation and restoration. And it wasn't until uh, I began to question it that uh, these groups were like, oh, well, they're all the same thing. And then you realise, no, they're not. They're using them in different ways to describe different uh, scenarios and conditions. I mean, that is so interesting because I've seen the same thing with the word rewilding right now, which which uh, then can take the place of many of the words that you just listed. And, and so one as, has to ask, well, why are you using that word? So there must be a reason right behind your choices or the, the framework that that people have over time and why they pick that word. Why does it have um, political salience now, for example? Um, so the other thing when I was listening to your authors, you came to Abby last, who, um, although he has nonfiction works, also has fiction works, right? Um, so I was wondering what you found qualitatively, is there a difference then between being the nature writer that these others are in, in having those kind of reflective nature writing nonfiction texts and fictionalizing it. And does that get different um, response, if you will, from the audiences that pick it up to then use it as part of their contemporary restoration activities? Yeah, I think there is a really stark difference. And, and one of the things particularly with uh, Abby's writings and his his two protest novels that are focused around uh, Glen Canyon Dam, so uh, The Monkey Wrench Gang from 1975 and then its uh, sequel, Hey Duke Lives, which was published uh, the year after Abby's death, in that both of those became almost uh, a kind of instruction manual for environmentalists in the American West. Like They gave some very detailed guidance on ways that you could uh, disrupt um, industrial uh, developments in the desert and uh, it was the it was the kind of the the ideas put forward in the monkey wrench gang that uh, led to the formation of of earth first uh, in 1980 and then there's, there's this really interesting uh, kind of back and forth where um, earth first's first public display of of civil disobedience was 
1981, and they unfold uh, a big plastic uh, jagged crack down the face of Glen Canyon Dam at a, at a protest rally. And this then, uh, a similar scenario, then worked its way into uh, the follow-up that Abbey would write uh, in, in the final years of his life. And Earth First had a central role in that second novel. So there's, and I think the, um, it's the epigraph to the Monkey Wrench Gang that I think is the best part of all, you know, all of the events that happened in this book um, are real and took place exactly one year from today. So it's that, um, that idea of, you know, it's a really fine line um, and that there's interesting ways that, that the fiction can be used as a way of uh, kind of playing out or, um, you know, exploring what could happen. Whereas for, for a lot of the other writers that I've focused on, those are much more um, accounts of being either immersed in, in the case of, of Thoreau and Muir especially, and also Abbey, um, also Leopold, sorry. But there's a, there's a kind of an interesting, a slight disconnect with Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in that her approach is that she wasn't uh, an environmentalist. She was, uh, you know, she was a, a vocal campaigner for protection, but she makes this acknowledgement within the Everglades River of Grass that actually she, she knows that the Everglades are there and that they're important and worth protecting, but she doesn't feel the need to be in them and out in the Everglades uh, in the same way that uh, historically other uh, literary naturalists might have been. And I just wanna remind everybody who's on the call that you are welcome to write into the chat to say that you either have a question and I'll call on you or write out your question in chat and we'll ask it on your behalf. So just a reminder there. Mm -hmm. And Finorna had a question. Yes, so you're focusing on American writers and also looking at American restoration projects. Uh, the question then is, is there, some significant difference than to to other places because you mentioned that for your masters you looked at some uk uh, organizations so are there differences do uk organizations uh work or are they in a dialogue with the same kind of material just british or american uh can you talk about mm -hmm. like a global tradition yeah, or is it or is it that so, there's something special about being american in this kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. you know west and you know because a lot of your writers of course are yeah, in the west and they're dealing with that kind of expansion i mean even thoreau right is actually dealing with expansion into um his area of walden yeah it was it was a deliberate um, choice only insofar as in the UK, uh, in Europe, in, across Australasia, I couldn't find uh, the kind of uh, the trajectory that went from environmental writer writing in a particular place that then fed into uh, an environmental organisation that was using that literature as um, almost a justification or provocation for protecting that landscape. So there are there are a couple of examples in the UK, perhaps think of Beatrix Potter and uh, the Lake District or Thomas Hardy and uh, his, his kind of writings about Wessex, but there was no kind of formal uh, 
organization that was taking that literature forward. So there were really interesting writers uh, writing about particular landscapes that have interesting things to say for restoration, but there was nothing that would then get picked up by a nonprofit that was then working for that. So that was that was what contained um, the, the focus. And initially, um, the original proposal for the book was was just the four male authors, which um, again there were, there were kind of questions then around you know so simply uh, kind of continuing the the focus on a particular uh, voice that has already been uh, reported on on several times and there are numerous works about uh, Thoreau and Abbey uh, and Leopold uh, and Muir already and it was only um, while I was reviewing my my proposal with with kind of comments back from from the reviewers that uh, I came across the work of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. She became uh, the, the fifth author to be included uh, in the book. And so it was, as I was writing the book, I was finding out about this, uh, this new figure, these new texts, this new campaign as I was going, and that was quite exciting. But one of the, one of the comments that came back from a, a couple of the reviewers was, you know, there's no women in your book. Um, there's no voice outside of uh, America, or there's no uh, there's no uh, voices from uh, post-colonial authors or or others. And so, it was very difficult to find something that fitted what I wanted to be able to do without uh, introducing something that could at, at worst feel quite tenuous. Um, and so, it's that's why the the five authors are uh, the five there. But what I've tried to do uh, within those chapters is bring in a lot of those other voices to either enter into conversation with or uh, to kind of critique or add new ways of thinking about some of these issues. Yeah, I'm thinking about here. Yeah, are there modern writers that might someday be those people right i mean could this be a a kind of a historical um lesson or something about how how your words might turn into um the motivation for um you know others so i'm thinking about here for example you know robert mcfarlane's um nature writing <laughs> or or George Monbiot, um, right? And his his work on rewilding. So there's many people that have picked up those threads, but the question is, do they make whole like new foundations or something, you know, based on it? Um, yeah. Are we at a moment in where that, that can't happen anymore? I guess maybe there were fewer writers um, back then. <laughs> The market is too much now. I don't know. Um, but uh, Anna had a question in the chat. Um, she's working on a, a similar topic for her master's. So she's really uh, excited to hear this presentation and your work. And um, is looking at some of the kind of philosophical tenets of environmental thinking in the West. So in that regard, you know, she's especially found the colonial and racist dimension to the start of both conservation and rewilding, you know, worth thinking about 
Um, so since you had mentioned those, she's curious whether you have further explored that colonial dimension of this you know, restoration thinking um, and what conclusions it's brought you to when you think about the way, I would say that the contemporary organizations that are drawing on these writers, what do they do with that complicated legacy? Mm. Hi, Anna, thanks. Um, yeah, I think it's it's something that I, I touch on in the book, but I don't go into too much detail um, because it's whilst it's, it's incredibly important, it it doesn't uh, the, the ways that it contributes to restoration uh, is quite complicated. And so I've I've begun to to unpack that and certainly um, around uh, the writings of John Muir, like certainly in the past couple of years, there's been um, a renewed uh, critique uh, and reconsideration of his writings and uh, his, his kind of environmentalism more widely. Uh, and I think the, the work that the Sierra Club has begun uh, in addressing that and uh, kind of thinking through uh, not just uh, the, the legacy that Muir has left at the Sierra Club, but also some of its early uh, members who uh, were closely linked to uh, kind of conversations on eugenics um, and wider uh, issues that it's it's opened up a kind of rethinking and uh, reinterrogation of some of these texts and the ways that um, landscapes and the peoples within them are uh, described reported on uh, those voices that are heard and, and not heard and I think that's that's kind of a wider uh, commentary on, on the early history of the American conservation movement as well and uh, those earliest uh, histories of, of national parks and the uh, the kind of uh, dislocations uh, and, and forced removals of uh, indigenous and other communities from those so that there have been some great um, provocative um, pieces over the past uh, couple of years that have really begun to uh, engage with some of these questions and I think certainly in light of uh, the National Park Centenary in, in 2016 that it that it really brought uh, attention back on some of these these questions and there are uh, some really uh, thought-provoking and inspiring conversations coming out of that right now. Well, you brought up the national parks there. Um, so I was wondering about the influence of these writers. You know, you were looking specifically at how uh, these not-for-profits uh, use them, but how do other agencies like, like the National Forest Service, um, do they also rely on, on those writers for their thinking about, you know, good nature relations or do they have a, a, a separate set of authors? I think the, it's one of many. So certainly um, in Yosemite, like Muir is one of several, um, in, the, in the exhibition space there, Muir is one of several um, figures who are uh, kind of represented in, in that kind of early history of, of Yosemite as, you know, as well as writers, artists, photographers, um, the indigenous groups that were there uh, as well. There was something interesting that happened a couple of years ago at uh, kind of Muir Woods, which is just outside San Francisco. And uh, some of the rangers had um, 
began, rangers and, and visitors had begun to go around the, the sites and uh, informally update some of the the information panels around so whether it was just a post-it note or something but just uh, kind of drawing attention to uh, the history of, of figures alongside Muir but also um, the first US forest chief Gifford Pinchot, President Teddy Roosevelt um, and a number of other figures involved in uh, that kind of conservation uh, moment so there's um, and then uh, with with the Everglades uh, as well in the, the work of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, that she is often uh, one of many uh, voices again in, in kind of talking about the early history of, of the parks. She, she was invited to join uh, the proposal for, uh, or a committee uh, working towards uh, a proposal for Yosemite National, uh, Everglades National Park. And uh, the leader of that was a landscape architect called Ernest Coe. And so often he's, uh, his name um, is closely linked with uh, Everglades National Park alongside Douglas and a number of other people, including uh, members of the, uh, the Tropical uh, Audubon Society, so a, a state chapter of, uh, of the National Audubon Society. So there are a number of figures, um, uh, gra grassroots groups, local communities um, and others who have all like the history of the park is bound up in all of them, but there are um, kind of certain voices that get, or certain figures that do get amplified uh, in, in, in that telling sometimes. So how do these groups then use these, if you will, their foundational myths, right? That's in, in many ways, that's that's kind of what they're what they're doing. They're looking to these founding founding fathers and mother um, for their myths. Is it is it that they in you know do pull out quotes from from these texts? Um, or is it is it deep? Is, or is it shallow, I guess, in terms of their engagement with, with those authors? What I found really interesting is that it is incredibly varied across even these five uh, nonprofits. So perhaps the, the organization that is most uh, closely tied with the philosophy and writings of the author uh, is the work of the Walden Woods Project in, the, uh, in their mission statement, they work to, um, protect and restore uh, Thoreau's Walden. And right from the earliest um, conservation efforts in Walden Woods, that um, it's always been this idea of protecting what became known as the Walden of Emerson and Thoreau. And that was a phrase that came through um, in, a, um, in a 1922 document that uh, kind of protected the earliest um, portion of Walden Woods, uh, the, the deed of gift, it was those uh, pockets of land immediately uh, around the shoreline and then the, uh, the state park uh, kind of expanded from, from there. So you've got a very, very tight uh, link with Thoreau through the work of um, many of the groups who have been working in Walden Woods. So um, the Save Walden Committee, which was involved in those earliest uh, campaigns in the 1950s, was an offshoot of the Thoreau Society, which was a, you know, historically a, a scholarly uh, organisation. They weren't a conservation one, but when uh, a section of the woods was threatened in the 50s, they set up this, this conservation 
um, section. Organizations have been called um, like Walden Forever Wild or Friends of Thoreau Country, the Thoreau Country Conservation Alliance. So Thoreau has been um, deeply uh, intertwined in those conservation uh, practices. For uh, some of the other organizations I've looked at, like Restore Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite, it doesn't have, um, it doesn't take Muir's writings as uh, it, its kind of foundation for, for working towards uh, the restoration of the Hetch Hetchy Valley. The, uh, the kind of, some of the ideas and the ethos of, of what Muir described and the, the kind of landscape that is um, reported or, or depicted in those writings are important to the organization and they have links with um, the, the Muir family. And there, there's kind of some, some collaboration there, but Muir's writings aren't fundamental in, in the same way as in underpinning that work. For the Aldo Leopold Foundation, when that was first uh, established in the eighties, it was set up by Leopold's five children. It was very much to continue the work um, that Leopold had begun uh, at the, the location of their, their family farm and using that as a site for uh, conservation and restoration, showcasing um, and expanding it, not just to uh, around that site, but across uh, that part of Wisconsin and another uh, organization that, that was set up uh, in the 1960s, the Sand County Foundation, which uh, kind of borrows from the name um, of, of Leopold's book, Sand County Almanac. Again, that was focused in its very earliest days in protecting the lands immediately around the shack, but today is much more um, focused on helping landowners with conservation projects across Wisconsin and states more widely. So you've got these different ways that Leopold's ideas are used in those two organizations. For the Glen Canyon Institute, um, working in uh, kind of questions around dam decommissioning and that, they're certainly not using Abby's writings from the Monkey Wrench Gang that we should kind of TNT it. Um, but they are taking forward that idea of, um, you know, there, there is an alternative and you know, restoration is possible and we're seeing at the moment as the water levels dropping um, side canyons that have been underwater for for 50 years or more are uh, suddenly uh, visible accessible um, gradually the the kind of sediment is is washing away new vegetation is is re-establishing animals are returning um, and so there's there's kind of interesting things happening there um, and with the work of, of Friends of the Everglades, that was of the five organisations I've been looking at, that is the one that, um, that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas herself set up, and it, it very much carries on with her kind of activism uh, legacy. It's, it's kind of shifted away from um, that kind of direct action approach since her since her death in the late 90s. And it's much more focused on litigation now, but it still carries um, that idea. And, and one of the things that I've, um, that unfortunately coincided with the writing of the book was the, the shooting at Parkland in, in 2018, uh, which was at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And the students there, you know, they, they um, 
a number of, of the survivors set up uh, Never Again MSD. They organized the March for Our Lives uh, in Washington to call for stricter gun control. And so they've taken the social justice activism of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and used it uh, as a way to, you know, they've echoing some of her earlier ideas around, um, you know, opening up debate on, on gun control regulation and, and all of those sorts of things. So you're describing then the, the work of these organizations and uh, the influence they have or that the literatures had on them, their background, but how did you go about studying them? Were there issues getting access to, to their material? I mean, what kind of material? Because we've had several book talks, we've talked about corporate mm -hmm. archives where this has been a major challenge and that may or may not be the case with various organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'd be interesting to hear a bit more about the, the practical experience of working with them and this mm -hmm. material. So I've had, um, I've had research links with the Walden Woods project since uh, kind of 2006, 2007. And um, they have uh, the Thoreau Institute on their, uh, on their project campus houses uh, the, the library collections of Thoreau and a lot of it is also digitized. Um, so I've, during my PhD, I, I spent a summer there uh, looking into some of these early conservation debates alongside the, the kind of writings of Thoreau, uh, the published and unpublished uh, texts, the journal entries, um, all of those sorts of things. Over the years, I've also worked with uh, the Glen Canyon Institute and the Restore Hetch Hetchy. So um, a lot of the time it's, it's been interviews with uh, members of the organisations and for this research, uh, the, or for this book, um, working with the Alder Leopold Foundation and Friends of the Everglades were uh, kind of new, uh, new encounters. And uh, the plan when I started the book in, in kind of 2017, 2018, was that the summer of 2020 would be one spent in the States doing research. Um, and well, I didn't. Uh, it all moved online um, and it, like it worked, it worked fine. There were there was some uh, quite extreme time differences that we uh, managed to negotiate, and that that worked fine. And uh, I found that things that I needed were online. There's uh, archives certainly of of all of Muir's uh, writings housed at the University of the Pacific. Uh, a lot of Leopold's writings uh, are available online um, as well, and. Uh, Many of, of Douglas's works are, are published and, and available in newspapers, uh, on newspaper archives as well. So, yeah, it was a lot more online research than I had uh, anticipated at the start. But uh, in many ways, I, I kind of think the, the book is, is uh, richer for what I've managed to, to do, and it cut out all the travel. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so where does one, where do you think there is to go then to get the literature, I guess, recognized as this heritage of restoration? You know, what, what's kind of your hope for, for what this book will do uh, within the restoration community? I'd hope that it would be more, sometimes, Environmental writing is, is kind of dismissed um, 
as not being, I don't know, not being critical enough or not having uh, an interesting contribution to make to environmental policy. I mean, there are certain texts that, um, you know, have been incredibly powerful in environmental politics. Uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring is perhaps the, the most frequently uh, acknowledged one. But I think there's, in each of the, the writers that I've been looking at, you know, they may be authors uh, or, or authors that you know about, might have read a little of, might have heard of um, before, uh, others maybe not. Um, and I think it's, it's just drawing attention to what environmental literature can do as a, as a, if you begin to think about it as environmental writing as advocacy, as a way of um, not just reporting on or recording an environmental condition, but as that then maybe later on becoming something that will um, help support a conservation campaign or uh, the promotion of, of new regulation or, or legislation or something. And not just being like, oh, you know, it's, it's just, it's just this or it's just that, but actually thinking maybe there's something else there that has been uh, overlooked or downplayed um, that makes it quite exciting to reread and to think about in, uh, in different ways. And certainly early in lockdown, one of the things that uh, the Walden Woods Project and, and the Thoreau Institute, uh, together with the Thoreau Society, collaborated on was these, they called it Thursdays with Thoreau. And they would reread uh, chapters of uh, Walden or essays by Thoreau that focused on uh, questions of solitude or friendship or those sorts of things. So whilst we were all um, getting to uh, getting into that, that kind of social, uh, that kind of isolation, social distancing, that using those, those texts to keep uh, people connected um, and revisit some of these writings and having conversations around that. So I guess we could take that point and turn it on its head and ask, you know, what are your advice to nature writers today based on what you've done? Right. You know, should they be content with, you know, writing about nature? I mean, raising awareness, appreciation, I mean, critical reflection, or should they in fact do more? And how, if so, how can they? I think environmental writing today is it's almost unrecognizable from uh, some of the early examples of environmental writing that I've been looking at. Um, we're hearing from uh, different types of writers in different types of places at different times. Um, there's that, the, there's the personal and reflective dimension, there's the, the kind of broadening out. I think it's, 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 it's kind of what Dolly alluded to earlier in that, that you, you don't know where it's going to go. Um, or who's going to read it in a particular way and think, oh, this becomes then um, this new idea. And it's, I'm kind of reminded of uh, the reason why Thoreau left Walden Pond after two years was that he had many more lives to live. And I think that's the thing that environmental writers should um, perhaps embrace is that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years time, you've no idea how your text might be read. And it's, it's not just environmental writers. Um, you know, 
policy, anything like that, could be his work of, of kind of history, politics, um, you know, coming back to it and, and kind of reviewing it in decades to come. I think that's that's kind of where the excitement lies, isn't it? You, we don't know yet what it might go on to inspire or what it could lead to. Um, and then looking at five authors, like these texts have been used in really different ways to do uh, some quite different and at, and at times quite remarkable things um, that couldn't have been uh, envisaged um, when they were when they were first produced. And these texts are they were radical when they were when they were written, but they're also they're also being kind of re-politicized uh, and reimagined to uh, engage with and grapple with contemporary issues that um, I think has uh, kind of lots of I think there's lots more that could that could be done with it. Well, while we're thinking about that, lots more that could be done. Um, do you have plans for what you're going to do uh, next after this? Are you going to continue with these kind of writers or move on to something different? I don't know. <laughs> is this is this is the the kind of thing I'm now uh, kind of reviewing? Is that the book had taken up um, kind of the, the best part of three and a half years, and um, when I've when I've done research before, I've I've always kind of as I've been coming towards the end of one project, queued up the next, so that I don't have this weird uh, kind of changeover period. But that's what's happened this time, uh, and the perhaps the um, the really exciting or uh, slightly unnerving thing is that I've now got so many ideas of what I could do um, that I don't know which one to uh, to kind of settle with. In kind of now that the, the the book is finished and thinking about that that I'm, I'm quite keen to um, to do something more uh, with Thoreau and, and Walden it's the it's the kind of it's what I keep returning to this is where uh, my interest in this came from it was it was during my PhD placements and uh, the kind of experiences I had during that time um, of, of being able to read Walden in Walden and all of the sorts of things that went with that that made that an incredibly uh, powerful and uh, memorable experience. And the, the kind of questions it raised that that was my first um, kind of experience with some of these writers. And uh, one of the things I'm, I'd be keen to look at is the, 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 that kind of part of Walden Woods where Thoreau really developed his, uh, his writings on conservation ideas of forest succession uh, all played out uh, on an area of Walden known as Brister's Hill. And so I'd be quite interested in, in doing a kind of um, cultural and, and literary history of the different, uh, the different layers of, of Brister's Hill, the people who were uh, involved there, not just Thoreau, but it's, it's kind of place in, in wider conservation um, ideas and um, how that kind of plays out through uh, different types of histories as well. Concord was a, a kind of major location in, in the start of the American Revolution, so you've got all that uh, history as well. There's the, the conservation, there's uh, the, uh, the Underground Railroad, Thoreau's involvement and his mother's involvement with that. There's a whole range of different narratives, industrialization um, that come into play there that I think that might be 
um, where I turn next. Thank you, Laura. That sounds absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing that book. It might take a couple of years, uh, but <laughs> good luck uh, in, in the process. So uh, we should just wrap up then with uh, uh, a big thank you then to Laura Smith uh, for talking about her book, uh, Ecological Restoration and the U.S. Nature and Environmental Writing Tradition, A Rewilding of American Letters, which is out now with Palgrave Macmillan. So thank you, Laura. Thank you, everyone, for coming today. Thanks.